Hark! It's the 87th Precinct Podcast. This is the only podcast in the world dedicated to Ed McBain's seminal series of police procedural novels, which began in 1956 with Cop Hater and ended in 2005 with Fiddlers. There were 55 books in the series, and today's episode looks at book number 55, Fiddlers. Yes, we've made it to the end of the series, and ever since I released the first episode of this show, way back on the 22nd of November 2016, (laughs) I've been on this journey, accompanied by my stalwart companions, Mr. Stephen Royston. Hello. And Mr. Morgan Brown. Hello there. So, we've arrived at the end of the line, as it were, at the end of the literature literature line? The literary line? Anyway. The buffer stop. The buffer stop of... <laughs> is the... in sight. Yeah. Oh, it wasn't supposed to take us quite this long to do. I wouldn't have been able to tell you. So I, wouldn't, yeah, I wouldn't have guessed that long ago, I don't think. Yeah, well, I mean, the original plan was, if it all went to schedule, we would have done, we'd have been done in December 2021. So it wouldn't have been that long ago. Oh, well, so, that's I mean, all right. I think, think a little bit of leeway is, is Well, acceptable. yeah, if you factor in a huge global pandemic and yeah. things like that as well, I think, you know... In terms of the uh, the plus or minus, <laughs> only a few months out, so I think we've not done too badly. Done very well. And, I mean, that includes as well things that I hadn't planned to do originally, which was to have some stuff with guests coming on to look at things like the films and spin-offs and some other stuff. So, like our friend uh, Adam Paxburn and my brother Gary and, and uh, people like Lorraine and Steph coming along to, to contribute things mm-hmm. as well. So, you know, the scope has expanded yeah. for the project. It's the end. <laughs> but the moment has been prepared for. We've got fiddlers to discuss, and we're going to have our final bonus episode to talk about the year 2005, the year the book comes out, and so on. Mm -hmm. And we'll most likely be back before too long for a special episode to round out this main series with an overview of all the scores and see how we feel about having got through it all. (laughs) And we'll answer some of the questions that you've submitted to us. Some people have sent us some questions this week that would make sense to answer in their own episode rather than tread on the toes of this episode which i think's got a lot of information up front in it for me to deliver in the meantime if you want to get in touch with us it's at hark 87 podcast on instagram twitter you can find us on facebook you can email us at gmail.com and if you want to enable us to celebrate you can buy us a digital coffee which i haven't talked about for ages you can go to ko-fi.com coffee.com slash hark 87 podcast and buy us a virtual drink and we will turn it into a real drink or something. I don't know. <laughs> but before we get going, I suppose the special thank you must go to you, dear listener. I'm speaking to you personally now. Me? The individual. No, the individual <laughs> listener. Oh, oh, oh. The indi- I know I'm looking at I'm you. Li- I'm listening. Oh, well, you are listening. Oh, you've oh, caught right. me out in a technicality. <laughs> I thought he was thanking us, Morgan. Well, I mean, this goes without saying, I would have thought. But yes, our listeners, for being such... Uh, nice enthusiastic and passionate people about the books and the podcast and you're all great in fact in the entire time we've been doing this and been on the social media and, and stuff no one i think has said anything stupid or horrible to us that i recall anyway so i think we've been doing all right yeah definitely there's been been some really fun kind of uh, interactions lots of people with uh, some great insights yes definitely some people with some you know personal experiences of of their first time reading things. Some people who've met McBain, some people who've interviewed him. Big nod to uh, Bill Slocum there for sending me some interview information. And yeah, it's been great. But in the meantime, before the fiddlers have fled, 
let us get stuck into a little about the year 2005 and then we'll find out what was going on in McBain's world uh, or for as much of it as lasted into the year 2005 for him anyway. Can't really sugarcoat that, so we know what's coming. But yeah, 2005, the year, or yesterday as it, uh, <laughs> as it was. Well, we've still got George W. Bush in America. We've got Tony Blair over here in the UK. And here's some selected events from 2005. It's another parade of joy. <laughs> April the 2nd, Pope John Paul II dies. Or classic Pope, as I like <laughs> yes. to call him. Uh, he was around for a long time, wasn't he? And he, then uh, He was a, a long Pope. A very long very Pope. Long. One of the longer of the Popes. Yeah. Mm. yeah. I was very pleased that, although I am not a believer, I did visit Rome and did see a classic Pope. Did you see him? Outside the Vatican, in, yeah. In his house? Well, outside his house. What was he doing? The gardening? <laughs> well, you know, he was Clean doing... the windows. He was mumbling into a, a microphone. All oh, right. Yeah. Then he did his windows. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. yeah I wouldn't have thought that would be 2005. I couldn't... Yeah. I wouldn't have thought that was longer ago somehow. And then there was another Pope appointed, wasn't there? And he was like, oh, I can't be bothered with this Poping. And then stopped, didn't he? He was the German Pope, wasn't he? Benedict, was it? it? There was some fuss about him having fancy red shoes or something. That's the only thing I can remember about him. I think you're thinking of the Wizard of Oz. It's the same thing, isn't same it, really? Thing. I think they made him Pope and then realised he was incredibly old yeah. and that it was a bit of a mistake. So well, I think he unpoped himself, didn't he? <laughs> he did. depoped himself. Yeah. Mm. Oof. A reverse poping. <laughs> uh, right, uh, let's move on. <laughs> Pope. 18th of April, this is for our friends in Australia, of whom I know we have some. A 15-year-old boy allegedly stole a tram in Melbourne. He drove around on the network for 40 minutes before being stopped by the police. And can you guess what nickname he was given? Tram boy. Yep, for our right first time. <laughs> Bless you, Australia, you kept it simple. <laughs> Why do you use the word allegedly? Cause, uh, it's like he either did or didn't. It's, it's a fairly did he claim he was employed by the, um, <laughs> by the Oztram. Or someone, someone gave it to him. No, I didn't steal it. A gift from the Melbourne yeah. Transit Authority. <laughs> what was his uh, name? I've ref- I've not found out. Doesn't matter. Really. Doesn't matter. We it's know tram him as Tramboy. <laughs> He's probably got a range of merchandise. Uh, <laughs> April the twenty third, the first ever YouTube video is uploaded. The first ever YouTube video, which is baffling that these things have to start when they feel like they've been around forever. Do we know what it was? Yes, we do know what it was. It's called Me at the Zoo. Oh. And it's like, I think it's about 18 seconds long of someone stood in front of an elephant enclosure at a zoo. I think San Diego, possibly, saying elephants are great. They've got long trunks, essentially. Wow. And it's been viewed 231 million times. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> but that was the first proper YouTube video. So, so the Pope would have never seen a YouTube video, would he? Pope John Paul II, no. Mm. no. Unless he was in on this sort of development phase. Yeah, well, he, could be, <laughs> he, he might be, might he? He's something to do with your evenings when you're the Pope. Uh, yeah, so we move to May, and in May we have the Eurovision Song Contest. And the only reason I'm mentioning that is because... The Eurovision Song Contest took place last night as we were recording this and was won by Ukraine mm-hmm. with uh, the United Kingdom coming into a rare second yeah, place. Yeah, they did all right this year, didn't they? I haven't heard the song No, yet. neither have I, but that's <laughs> astounding really, isn't it? Yeah, but I mention it because in 2005 Eurovision was held in Ukraine. Mm. So 
hopefully next year it will also be held in Ukraine. Please, you know, if things go better than they yes. are at the moment. Talking of music, July the 2nd, we have the Live 8 concerts. Oh, yeah. Which, I think there was different ones around the world, wasn't there? Yeah. So it wasn't just... Hyde Park in the UK. That's right. There were a few different ones, weren't there? I get confused with those because I always think they should have been in 2008. Yes, they should have. It would have made sense, wouldn't it? Um, I, say, I guess it was it was the anniversary of the original ones, wasn't it? But yeah, there was there was were there two in the UK because there was a Glasgow one as well. Possibly. Oh, possibly. I, I, I don't know. So what does the eight mean? It was eight events. It was. I never understood what the eight meant. I, I I think I knew at the time. I can't remember now. Well, I remember like Pink Floyd. Did the reunion with Roger Waters, didn't they? They did, yeah, yeah. Um, I mainly otherwise just remember Bono looking smug and clicking his fingers and saying every time I click my fingers, however many people die. Yeah. And everyone, lots of people going, well, stop clicking your fingers then. <laughs> <laughs> An obvious but necessary joke. Absolutely. Yeah, I remember the Pink Floyd stuff and I don't remember watching much more of it. I did look down the rundown of acts that were on it today and went, ugh. I think the Proclaimers were really good. Oh, well, um, they usually are. I, I think they were the opening acts on one of them, and and there was a whole st- seeing a whole stadium going absolutely nuts while when they played mm. Five Hundred Miles was was uh, quite impressive. Yeah, I think, I think Roger Waters did double denim, didn't he? Oh, like, I he hope had, like, so. A slight denimy shirt. Yeah, I don't know. Roger Waters going through his eighties uh, Brian Adams phase. <laughs> yeah, just... might have misremembered that. But... <laughs> anyway, um, let's move on to. Something horrible. July the 7th, there was a series of terrorist attacks across the transport system in London, leaving many people dead. That was a horrible, horrible day. I remember that happening. Uh, August the 29th, in America, we have Hurricane Katrina, which killed and displaced many thousands of people. Sorry, it's gone very miserable now, but unfortunately, these are the standout things from the year, as it were. Uh, but uh, on a lighter note, the last one I've got to mention is on November the 24th, in England and Wales, pubs are allowed to open for 24 hours. <laughs> Not just that day. I mean, from there on in, you know, should you apply for a licence to do so. <laughs> They've never shut any of them. <laughs> no. Still the same bar staff, exhausted. When can we go home? <laughs> right. I think the tram story was the highlight there. Yeah, Good old tram boy. boy. We'd better get on to uh, the world of McBain, because like I say, I've got quite a lot of information to deliver deliver up front here, because oddly enough, this being the last year of Ed McBain's life, there's there's quite a lot going on. In 2005, we have Merely Hate is published in the Transgressions book, of which I did a little mini episode for everyone. So that's an 87th Precinct story in an Ed McBain edited volume of stories from a load of different authors. We also have the memoir Let's Talk written by Evan Hunter, comes out in 2005. And then we have Fiddlers later in the year. We also have a novel called Alice in Jeopardy, which he was intending to be the start of a new run of books, beginning with Letters of the Alphabet. (laughs) You know, he was a very ill man, but uh, he just knew how to write. Yeah, what better way to take your mind off your illness than starting a new series of 26 books? Yes, exactly. Uh, but he got Alice in Jeopardy done and published, and we know that he'd started and outlined one called Becca in Jeopardy, which Dragiska asked Lawrence Block to whether he wanted to finish it off, and he said basically, I can't. You know, there's not mm. enough here to do me justice and do him justice as well. Mm. So that's why we don't have Becca in Jeopardy, and it's probably the right thing to do. Mm. We also have a short story published in 
Otto Penzler's Dangerous Women selection mm-hmm. called Improvisation. That's credited to Ed McBain. And in 2006, so posthumously, we have Learning to Kill, which is that really, really good short story collection of Ed McBain's stuff, which everyone should have in their collection. But we also have a bunch of stuff on TV and on radio and on the stage. Crikey. So Japan, never willing to give up on Hmm. adapting McBain stories, having done them at least twice through, on the 11th of September 2005 puts out Ed McBain Satsui, which is an adaptation of Killer's Wedge. On the 14th of January 2007, they put out... I'm not going to read the Japanese because it's a very mm-hmm. long name and I will just embarrass myself. Uh, an adaptation of Killer's Choice. And in um, September 2007, they put out another ad- adaptation of King's Ransom, so an, which is essentially, you know, high high to low, high, high and low even. Uh, yeah. I'm getting to say my song name there <laughs> from the uh, currently released Good Grief album. So they do three adaptations, so three more McBain's of ones that have been ad- adapted a couple of times they've done. Mm. In 2007, 1st of June 2007, there is a play put on called Final Curtain, rather appropriately. It's a stage play written by McBain, and it's presented as part of the International Mystery Writers Festival in Owensboro, Kentucky. For all his attempts at getting stuff on the stage and failing, it turns out two years after he's died, he he manages to get something performed. And I also got, on the 25th of December 2016, we have Stille Nacht which is the adaptation of the Christmas story on German radio, which is just bonkers. (laughs) So let me take you through to the end, as it were. I'm going to quote from my writings here, like a big head. (laughs) May 2005 saw the appearance of his memoir, Let's Talk, which ultimately told the story of his illnesses from both his and Dina's perspective. But... Despite his goal of reaching 93 and still writing, as his friend P.G. Woodhouse had, Hunter passed away at the age of 78 on the 6th of July 2005. A memorial service for the author was held in New York on the 15th of October 2005, birth date of great men, with attendees including fellow authors Elmore Leonard and Lawrence Block, as well as publishers, agents, fans and friends. The In Jeopardy series got no further than Alice, although the partial manuscript for Becker in Jeopardy was presented to Lawrence Block, and Block felt there wasn't enough material to produce a book that either he or its late originator would be happy with. Hunter's final new piece of writing was to emerge in 2007 when one of his mystery plays was selected to appear as part of the International Mystery Writers Festival in June of that year. As I've outlined there. Mm. So, there we go. This is the year that we lose Evan Hunter. There's a, a, a nice short report about the memorial service from the author, Sarah Weinman, where she says, It's impossible to prove if he had anything to do with it, but after a solid week of non-stop rain, the sun broke out on what pr- proved to be a beautiful fall afternoon. But Hunter, as guest speaker after guest speaker reminded the crowd, wasn't a sombre man. Witty, charming, erudite and loyal, certainly. Also one with a keen sense of humour and a real mischievous streak. But above all, what got through, especially to someone like me, who did not know him, was his capacity to love. All one had to do was to take a look at his widow, Drajishka, as she stepped onto the stage in a sumptuous black frock that highlighted her beauty. Her face, already brimming with tears, betrayed too many emotions to name as she recited a short poem by Mary Fry. And every word she spoke was overladen with love for her husband. Sarah goes on to mention 
Elmore Leonard makes an appearance. Richard Condon, the NYPD commissioner who's referred to very often in mm. these books. Uh, Lawrence Block, wishing he'd had a chance to thank Hunter for buying him a drink back in 1957. <laughs> uh, Jane Gelfman, his agent, who read from Let's Talk. They re- there's a couple of expert excerpts, even, from The Night They Raided Minsky's, the unproduced musical. Mm. Old friend Marilyn Stacio, the reviewer, relating an anecdote about how a confrontation with Hunter at an Edgar ceremony ultimately led to an unlikely alliance and to her breaking some cardinal rules. <laughs> and then e- editors and s- someone singing for him as well. So that's interesting. You find that mm. online from Sarah Weinman. Yeah, right. No Newgate calendar. He didn't. No, no Newgate <laughs> calendar. <Invited. laughs> it was not allowed within the uh, within the territory of the uh, <laughs> of the service. <laughs> right. Let us get to Fiddlers, book fifty-five of fifty-five. So when did when did this come out? When did he write this then? In well, the it was published posthumously. Actually, it was it came out on the thirteenth of September two thousand and five. Oh, so it couldn't have been that. Yeah, I think it it would have been a spring of that year, probably then. Yeah, I think um, yeah. when his obituaries were written, it was announced. They we knew that Fiddlers was was coming out. And that that would have been it. People knew that it was then going to be the last book by by dint of him having passed mm. away. What's funny though is in the in the UK it's still published in Orion, but in America he's changed publisher again. <laughs> so, so his very last book in the series he has another new publisher and he goes with Harcourt. Whether that was going to be an arrangement for the future for other things, I don't know. I've not cross checked with like Alice in Jeopardy or anything mm. like that, but. Yeah, after years of going backwards and forwards with publishers, then going back to pocket books towards the end, he swapped for this very last one. Right, let's get into it. Let's just do a quick check. Have we all read it before, Morgan? Yes. Steve-o? Uh, yes. I definitely have, and I feel in a strange way this might have been one of the earliest ones that I read, not knowing the order of things. Yeah, I think I've, I've, I mean, I, I think I read it fairly soon after it came out. Oh, right, yes, of course. Well, you'd have been yeah. buying and aware of these things then when I sort of wasn't really. Uh, this was definitely one of the few that I purchased new. Although well, you'd never guess it from the horrific state it's in now. It's been through a couple of like slightly damp flats in, <laughs> in the intervening years. But yeah. All right. Any recollection of when you first came to it, Steve? Uh, well, I read them all in order, didn't I? When, yeah. Uh, so, yes, I would have read it in its rightful place in the chronology. Okay. Um, which I don't suppose whether it particularly matters or not, but um, there's certain things in there which make it a bit more meaningful, maybe. Yeah, I think it has got bits in it where where knowing the series is very helpful. <laughs> but in compared to some of them, it sort of doesn't matter in a way. I yeah. I remember reading it and thinking, well, obviously I don't know the story with so and so and so and so or that person and those people, but you felt like okay, that's fine, that's a good glimpse, rather than it being alienating, as sometimes yeah. that stuff can be. All those little bits, particularly towards the end of this this book, are uh, are okay. And I remember it thinking, well, that's enough to keep me reading again, because I'm mm. sure this can only have been perhaps the fourth or fifth one I read, maybe maybe even earlier than that. Mm. Who wants to try and sum it up? <laughs> uh, anyone? Steve-O, do you want to try yeah. and do a summary? Yeah, well, f- as we often say, there's quite a bit going on, isn't there? Yeah, lots of people getting popped off, isn't there? Shot in the face. Shot in the face by a Glock. And uh, thus happens the Glock murders, killings. Can't remember the Glock shootings. Yeah, the Glock murders, I think. Whatever they they call them. Yeah, starts calling them, don't they? And so, um, yes, uh, uh, 
trying to remember the order really, but yeah, the first person who gets shot in the face uh, for no apparent reason is a a blind fiddler. Yep, violinist. Who plays in a dodgy club that, um, yeah, has some story then attached to it regarding drugs and whatnot. So yeah, this poor 50-odd-year-old... Blind fiddler dies, no, no real kind of mo- apparent motive. And then shortly after that, who dies after that? <laughs> a, a, a lady who works as a, uh, she works as a beautician. Yeah. yeah. Uh, maybe That's early right. 50s. And um, so there's more victims and this kind of get older and older as the book goes on, but they're all uh, no spring chickens. Any yeah, of she's folks. like a, a rep of a, a sort of beauty products company, is she? Yeah, it, so yeah. she, she travels between different businesses. Yes, and, that's right, yeah. Um, yeah, they're all, all generally of a, of a similar age, although actually then there's a... You get progressively older as the book goes it, on. Yeah, there's a, and there's a, uh, a priest. There's a uh, the third also shot in the face. Is she a university lecturer? And yes, they're all very, well, generally fairly innocent yeah. people that the, you can't really find any connection no with. But we, connection. we do know that the uh, the killer. Do we know at this point? Is kind of like um, kind of like urges them to rem- remember who he is, and they're like, do you recognise me? I think, I think me? We, we get a little glimpse of each murder, don't we? And and they, yeah. we get we get it'll and introduce him, reintroduce himself. And he's like, yes, it's Chuck or whatever. So we're in no doubt that it's the same person doing this. Yeah, and the 87th Precinct are in no doubt because although they catch the first murder, as in catch as in take on, not catch the murderer, as although that becomes their responsibility, all the other murders are in different places, but because ballistic, yeah, ballistics <laughs> identifies the bullets as from the same gun, they keep getting the first man up rule. So their workload increases and increases and increases and increases throughout this... Until they have got a stack of bodies. Yeah, the Giza murders, as some people try and call them instead of the Glock murders because of the elderly. Hmm. <laughs> yes, people in um, the 50s are definitely elderly. Ge- oh, yeah, absolutely, yeah. Geezers. Yeah. And then the the fifth, then, is a, yeah, he's a priest, like a pretty elderly priest. Yeah. Yes. Uh, again, shot in the face at point-blank range. Yeah, and so that is the basic arc. And then there are... Quite a few. Don't forget the lady who's also shot and her dog. Oh yes, of course, yes. So that yes, yes. So there's a lady who is shot uh, whilst walking a dog, and then the dog is shot as well. And so it's a bit of a yeah. Lots of separate investigations into all these different killings uh, because there's absolutely no apparent connection hmm. between any of these people. So they don't really know whether they're dealing with a a psychopath who's just killing people according to some insane plot or at random yeah but um yeah uh, but there's lots of little dead end plots as well isn't there uh, as alluded to with the, the drugs bust with the club and every little investigation follows a particular route many of which sort of it turns out aren't to do with the ultimate reason yeah which is good well, i'll tell you what i liked about it particularly this book is because there's so many bodies being dumped on the 87th precinct He's got to use loads of characters. Hmm. So mm. although, yeah, Corella is clearly still the lead character in this because we have more about his home life, I think is significant. Not that we don't get stuff with the hmm. others, but you do get all the pairings, don't you, essentially? And Hawes on his own for some reason. I don't know who he's upset <laughs> to be sent off on his own. 
Yes. Um, yeah, reading it, that was one thing that came through, like quite a fitting end book in terms that, the, yeah, he had the full cast really involved. Yeah. Um, kind of not really anybody missing out particularly. Also felt like a bit of a classic McBain entry in terms of the uh, yeah the little dead end plots going along as well. Yeah, yeah. It's I think it's very interesting this one. I think we've had a couple of books recently where things have where we've scored them pretty low. <laughs> um, I'm sort of anticipating this being a bit better than that, but we'll we'll keep looking at it. Let's go on then. Let's just do a little bit of a, a step by step here. So we have yet yeah, a violinist called Max Sobolov killed outside a club. Yes. They're investigating this on about the wedding on Wednesday, the sixteenth of June at eleven p.m. So this is another book where if you want to, you can. He remembers to put in the time points. Although I will say, he does get this mixed up somewhere. There's a couple of things in here I noticed where either the editing or hasn't been thorough. If you were going to be nitpicky about it, mm-hmm. he has a day which should be a Friday. He has it as a Thursday or the other mm-hmm. way around. Which, when you keep putting in your time stamp, essentially, mm. that's a bit silly to get that mixed up. And yeah. An editor should have noticed mm. that. Yeah, yeah, because at the end you find out that uh, the killer and his uh, girlfriend have known each other for ten days. They're quite specific about that, isn't it? Yeah. So be yeah. I don't, you'd have to check against it. I think it generally works. I think it just must be a, a, a not misprint, just a. It's just not quite right, but an editor should have picked that up. They also there's one scene where they're gathered they're gathered in Burns's office, Lieutenant Burns's office. Mm. But it says in that same block of storytelling, it says they were poring over the papers on Corella's desk, mm. which implies that Corella's desk is in Burns's office. <laughs> oh, which right. is I only noticed it when I was going through and checking and making my notes mm. and stuff. It's like, all right, well I know that's not right. So <laughs> so I don't know how that got through. That it was a bit weird because at no point do they leave there. You know, it's hardly a complaint, really. It's no. just something I noticed, anyway. Yeah, so we have, yeah, Max Sobolov. So then they, yeah, they start quizzing all these bandmates, don't they, then? Who yeah, and you worry that he's going to get into talking about music again. <laughs> yeah, it could, could have been risky, but uh, we, we don't get too much of that, do we? No. Just just learn a bit of his, his background as a blind man with this this very deep sorrow and and then they gradually discover that he's uh he received his injuries in in uh, vietnam and yeah and that that gives him a little lead to follow there yeah and also um do we discover at that point is is uh drug addiction too quite early on i think yeah, yeah. I think for, possibly from his relatives, uh, who are all they're all very sympathetic. Uh, but yeah, they might in meant talking about them sympathetically. They managed to sort of mention that he was addicted to drugs as well. Yeah, they do. Uh, and the similar thing happens with the second victim as well. So we we do follow the the baddie in this story mm. right mm. from early on, and he makes this he gets this relationship with this one of two prostitutes who he's hired at the start of the story. And he forms a relationship with this much younger woman. Uh, but he has to pop out and kill Alicia Hendrick. And she's as well someone else who I think you find out very quickly was into drugs a bit. And mm-hmm. you think, oh, well, this is that's that's his little um, tease to the reader, isn't it? Mm-hmm. Oh, there's a drugs connection yeah. here. And there's definitely drug, a drug story in here, a little mini drug story. But yeah, it's quite good. There was I was very pleased with the line... A very 87th Precinct-esque line, which is when uh, Alicia Hendricks is walking around and she's thinking someone is following her. He says, the June heat hit her like a closed fist. (laughs) That's a proper McBain sort of pulp, hard-boiled line, isn't it? Yeah, classic. 
<laughs> then we get, yeah, we so we get that case handed off to the 87th Precinct. She'd already told people that a bald guy follow was following her, so they, they, yeah. they've got a bit of a, an idea about who, who might be involved, doesn't they? Not that it really helps them. No. I like that they go and they talk to one of her, uh, Alicia Hendrix's old boyfriend, who they split up because they had an argument over Mel Gibson's The Passion. Oh, that's right. <laughs> Which, you know, if you're going to... Uh, yeah, feelings run high when you're discussing Mel Gibson, especially uh, when he's making films like that. Yes. So what have we got? So all right, let's keep going down here. I'm skipping over a lot of character stuff here just to try and get through all these things. Yeah, because it's not an overly long book. No, not at all. a hell of a lot in it, yeah, really. Yeah, a lot, a, lot, a lot of kind of like little scenes which just kind of add, add to it. Yeah. Yeah, so the next victim, let's say, is Professor Christine Langston. Mm-hmm. There's nothing. I, the funny thing with this is, especially after having done all the books now, is there's nothing in here new. And you wouldn't necessarily expect there to be anything new. No. They've done this sort of investigation all the time, like, oh, we'll go to a high school and see if we can get back in the records to find this. Oh, we'll go to a hospital and yeah. see if we can get back in the records to do this. But that's sort of what you want, isn't it, yeah. from, from this, which I think is kind of been lacking in one or two of them. Yeah. It's very much a throwback, I think, to his... A lot of the earlier stuff. Yeah. It's had that feel to it anyway. Yeah, it feels like sort of re-establishing a lot of the kind of things that, yeah, the standard things that you would like from an 87th Precinct book. So, yeah, very welcome, really. Yes, the professor who's, is it, is it a, a friend who they go and visit who's a proper old crank? Yeah, <laughs> who, who takes delight in telling a story about her background where she did something really really horrible yep yeah so yeah ollie fat ollie of course features throughout this as well he catches the um the murder of a priest one father michael as a reference back to vespers there which is a sort of nice nod back mm-hmm. I, there's a little bit of me that when they have people like corella and maya going to a, a veterans hospital and when people go to a school like a music school they're able in the instant to find the records of someone who was there 30 years ago or whatever it was. Especially the music school one who was like, oh, it's lucky those records haven't been archived yet. <laughs> so what, from someone who was in here 40 years ago, you still have in a filing cabinet in your... I know how much paperwork is involved in education. You do not have that on hand. <laughs> yeah, you just get blank expressions of like, yeah. I'm going to clue where that Nobody is. works here that was there then type thing. Yeah. But, Unless they'd already... Well, yeah, they, they are talking about physical archives as well, aren't they, yeah, at this yeah, stage? Yeah. And it's not all been put onto a computer, as I guess it would be now. Yeah, there is one reference to some stuff being on microfiche, which is more... Yeah. You know, yeah. Good old microfiche. Mm. I think I've used one once, you know, in my time going to libraries. <laughs> I can't remember why. So, yeah, we have the priest, and then we kept going down here, and we keep going down here. Go, this is my big list, everyone, that you can hear me scrolling through. Mm. A lady walking her dog is shot, so is the dog, is my note for that bit. <laughs> Which Gennaro's really interested in. He's like, what breed is the dog? And yes. they're all like, what was the dog's name, he asks, doesn't yeah, he? Yeah, asking what the dog's name was. Some, yeah, some classic Gennaro in there, isn't there? Just... He's like, it's a golden. Oh, I love, love, love that type of dog. <laughs> we'll do that one, he says. <laughs> but they don't. They give that to Cotton Hawes. So Cotton Hawes, who has hardly been in any of them mm. recently, as a, as an interesting story. But if, let's, I tell you what, let's stop talking about murders. Let's talk about people. So yeah. Cotton Hawes goes off to find out something about this woman who's been shot and a dog. He meets one of her neighbours, who is in her 50s. We find out that Cotton is 
34, I think, in yeah. this one. So we get a bit of restatement of ages just to prove once again that the 87th Precinct operates in its own mystical mm. time system. I think Kling is 33, isn't he, in this dimension, and, and like Hawes yeah. is 34. But he meets this much older woman in her 50s and starts essentially starts a relationship with her during the course of the last three chapters of the book, I think, something like that. But it's quite nice for Cotton Horse because mm. it's very... It's done quite, I want to say, peacefully. Mm. You know, he, he goes back to see a... He sort of concocts a reason to go back to see this woman to get a bit more information and to ask her for dinner. She agrees... They agree not to sleep together on the first date, which is not what Cotton Hawes used to do. Uh, it's yeah, it's it's quite a nice departure from vintage Cotton Hawes, isn't it? Definitely. Yeah, and yeah, one of the last things you have in the book is him going to her house after like the story concludes and saying, "Just can I just sleep on the couch, please?" And her saying, "Look, well, let's see what happens." And that's quite a nice way mm. to end. You know, we don't know what happens there, and one of the things we can do now is just well, we can now fill in our own blanks from here on in for these relationships. So hopefully Cotton Hawes is happy with someone now and it's not going to be something, someone bizarre in the police force or some yeah. other person he shouldn't be sleeping yeah, with. Absolutely. Hmm. Morgan, tell us about Fat Ollie in this book then. Fat Ollie? Well, yeah, he's, he's, he's doing all right. He's been taking Officer Gomez's uh, dietary advice and he's lost yeah. some weight, hasn't he? Yeah, yeah, that's nice. Looking very svelte. He's looking after himself. He's actually, yeah, seems to be sort of doing pretty well. Uh, he makes the mistake of, of actually listening to uh, Parker a bit. Yeah, he doesn't <laughs> laugh at his jokes though. Does doesn't he? laugh at his jokes. He's learning definitely. But yeah, Parker's d- determined to to halt his progress as a human being. Yeah, which I think is quite nice though, because he does say Ollie says, "Oh, I wish you know." Ollie thinks to himself, "I wish I knew Steve Carella better." Whereas mm. in the other books, he used to just treat him like he was his best mate and just yeah. go wading in. But He's the newer of, Ollie is a bit more self-aware, isn't yeah, he? Yeah, he definitely is. And although you kind of think he's going to ruin everything by following Andy Parker's advice, but actually, it's it's still looking quite good for him, I think. He's, he's doing all right, isn't he? Yeah. Essentially, he gets the last word in this book. I think the chap- it's chapter 12, which is literally one paragraph long at the end, feels very much like McBain went, oh, I better stick that in at the yeah. end there, because it's... Fat Ollie. We're not left with Corella or anything like that as the last word in this. It's it's not as positive for um, old Bert, though, is no. it? His efforts to um, win back Sharon haven't really... No. Don't come to anything, really, do they? No. It's... Well, yeah. So Bert Kling ends, ends his career in the 87th Precinct stories, at least, as a whining little sod. Yes. Essentially. Throughout, he's whining to Corella, he's whining to Brown, who just does not care. He's <laughs> like, I don't care. You're talking about sleeping with someone who's claiming they're a librarian and stuff like that. Yeah, he doesn't acquit himself very well at all, does he, sadly? No, he gets left staring off into the distance, essentially, I think, in this one. Mm. Whereas Ollie, for, yeah, like Ollie, he's essentially about to embark on a physical relationship with Officer Gomez. Uh, but he's also met her family and they love him, you know, <laughs> when, and, which is. You know, his redemption's quite good, really. So, yeah, you get Cotton Hawes meeting someone that looks like that's going to go okay. You get Ollie and Patricia Gomez. That seems quite nice. We don't really know much more. We know that Hal Willis and Eileen Burke are off doing their own thing anyway. And, uh, yeah, Kling is stuffed, Moping around, isn't he? Yeah. yeah. 
Although Corella's advice to him is like, I'd ring her all the time, over and over again, telling her I love her. Which yeah. is dreadful advice. Shocking that's advice. Awful advice. That's just harassment. But, you know, I think that's Corella's <laughs> rather bizarre romantic nature. But well, she ends up just putting the phone down on him and that's that, isn't it? Yeah, well, mm-hmm. yeah. She calls him eventually and says, tough luck, Bert, you ruined it. Oh, yeah. Yeah, for Steve Corella, we don't have a, a particularly romantic or happy end. I mean, it's not unhappy, but he's he's got his two kids... And they're becoming teenagers, and the things that happen to teenagers are starting to happen to them. And so his family life is becoming more difficult. But he's perhaps coming to peace with the loss of his father in this as yeah. well, which is quite nice. Yeah, there's a nice little telephone call with Luigi, doesn't he? Yeah, so his, his, his Italian stepfather calls him from Italy while he's at work, which is, you know... You'd think that would be terrifying if you picked up the phone and you're in work in essentially New York. <laughs> and I can't think what the time difference is between there and Italy. But you'd pick it up and you hear your Italian stepfather who's just married your mother and taken her across the, halfway across the world. You'd be thinking, this is an emergency <laughs> call. You wouldn't give that number out for people to just ring up and say, oh, have you received those presents yet? Yeah, and he phoned him up about something really weird, like crockery or something, or like oh, linen or something. It's just something really odd. Yeah, it's very mundane stuff. Yeah, I mean, yeah. So, <laughs> I mean, you know, like you say about this book being stuffed with things for quite a small book, you get quite a lot of that stuff in there. But I think the good thing is it's McBain being very efficient with his mm. writing again, in a way that a lot of the, particularly the nineties and two thousands ones, he isn't always mm. like that. Not chapter after chapter about music industry <laughs> shenanigans. Yeah, he, he resists going too specialist. And I wonder if partly what he's done here is, because we know he used um, Daniel Starer or Starer mm. to do research for a lot, and I'm sure he had a, uh, some research work to do on this, but this doesn't feel like a book where he's had to go, I need a load of specialist info. Mm. It's not really about anything, is it? There's no sort of reeling off pages and pages of facts about a thing anywhere, no. which is, is nice, really, because it doesn't always add a great deal, does it? No, if, it, if it's about, I suppose, Vietnam's about as what it is about as anything, isn't it? Yeah. Which he would have, you know, probably knew anyway from a lifetime of knowledge, I suppose. But the, 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 if there is a theme of anything, though, like you know, it's quite poignant. That it's the last one when it's essentially a, about people getting older, isn't it? And mm. you know, kind of a bit of you know, big revenge story of uh, yeah, you kind of never passed it in terms of past your responsibilities, if you know what I mean. It's your life story coming with you, and you're having to deal with it. And also, what it is, just to you know spoiler policy, etc. is we have a villain in this piece who is basically going to die very soon from cancer. Essentially, what's happened to McBain himself. Although, McBain chose to write books rather than go out and shoot loads of people in the face. Yeah. As far as we know. <laughs> so, so, I think yeah. that's in there. I mean, there is the author doesn't really burst through this book in the way he does in lots of them. Mm. But there are bits and pieces in there. I think there's there's um, a bit where Fat Ollie goes to a church and, and he goes on about how much he hates churches and doesn't understand it. Uh, he's like, don't write me letters, thinks Ollie, which is clearly McBain doing that because we know that he was not religious at all as well. Mm. And so, yeah, th- that weird sort of humorous authorial voice isn't in this. 
particularly, is it? But I don't think it suffers necessarily for, for not having that sort of flippant language in it that he very often puts in. But, you know, you, you're not meant to feel any great sympathy with any of the victims, though, either, are you really? Um, you know, always they're all portrayed to be fairly flawed or downright horrible yeah, yeah, some characters. Yeah, yeah, very evil people. It's, yeah, I suppose it's sort of Shakespearean. No, well, not Shakespearean necessarily. It's, it's a revenger's tragedy. Yeah, it's, it, it's like, yeah, it's like that sort of, sort of pre almost pre-Shakespearean kind of tragedy where, like, yeah, there's lots of horrible people and they all get unpleasant comeuppance and everyone ends up frothing at the mouth from kissing poison... Poison skulls. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Things like that. Who wrote the revenger's tragedy? Come on, Gosh, you're done with the English degree. Yeah. <laughs> Thomas Kidd, I don't know. It's someone like that. I, I can't remember. Yeah. But it's got that sort of sense to it, hasn't it? It's, it's you know, it's a, it's a tragedy in the sense of, of a string of murders. It's a tragedy in the events that have happened to the to the baddie of the piece, to the perp. Yeah, and, and he kind of like finds love, doesn't yeah. he? And that's and it's a tragedy, tragedy that, that's, yeah, that happens so to him. It's too late for him, really. Yeah. So it's, it's a funny one in that the, the, all the pieces do finally fall together the pieces are coming together sir <laughs> and they all eventually sort of converge through the information they received and and get this guy not long after he's he's killed a pimp essentially yeah. which again you're sort of going oh okay that's <laughs> can't really hold that against him he's killed a man who's battering a woman so it's a very strange it is a, it's quite an interesting moral mm. one now i think about it particularly but yeah he just confesses and he's happy to confess because he knows that that's that. Mm-hmm. So an interesting story. We better actually start summing up, really, and, and giving a, a grade, a grade, a rating. <laughs> <laughs> so it'll be the last outing until we use him for some uh, special overview calculations. It'll be the last outing for Kenneth Ooh. and all his components. Oh, I'll have to find a new use for him. Yeah, I'm sure there'll be something we can repurpose him for. I think we'll go to Steve-O for a summing up and a, and a score, a Police Shields awarded well, score. Well, Police Shields, right, okay, yeah. No, well, yeah, I think it kind of hack, harks back to a... Whoa, whoa. Harks back to a um, an earlier feel somehow, really. Mm. Um, a, bit, a fairly no-frills kind of plot that's not spending 300 pages telling you the inner workings of... The theatre or something yeah. like that, which he's perhaps been a bit guilty of in, in recent years. And, um, yes, as mentioned, it's nice that most of the cast gets a one final opportunity to um, get involved. So, yeah, I very much enjoyed it, actually. Um, it was kind of one of those, when I started reading it, I could pretty much remember how it panned out. Mm. Um so what that tells you, I don't know. But um, yeah, no, I, I very much enjoyed it. Uh, and I shall go for a... Um, well, I might go for 87. You know Ooh, what it's that like. Seems... It's the last one. Excellent. It's probably a bit too high, but uh, there we go. I like the symbolism of it, I'll, though. Uh, yes, but... I'll, 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 I'll let my heart score it oh. a little bit more than my <laughs> head, perhaps. <laughs> Fair but, it, but it's certainly a good entry. Certainly a very a, 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 one of the certainly stronger of the... Uh, Last 20 years, I would say, certainly. Yeah. Okay, Morgan. Cool. Uh, yeah, I, I agree with uh, with everything uh, Steve all said there. Um, I remembered enjoying it the first time I read it, and I was happy to find that, that uh, I enjoyed it just as much uh, this time. It hasn't been the case with all of the 
the ones that I've reread. Um, yeah, uh, like good kind of return to the sort of snappy kind of procedural kind of plots of, of old and some really nice kind of like like really kind of quite poignant stuff as well in there. It's, it's mm. a good, good, good balance of those uh, things, really. Um, so, yeah, I think a, a really strong way for the series to go out. Um, and I'm... I'm Going to go for 84 police shields. 84. Okay, so it's up to me now to give my rating. And I'm normally the one who wades in here with some, oh, I can't get over that thing type stuff. The missing day. Yeah, no, I can't believe <laughs> 20 that they thought he was in an shields. office, but they were Ruined actually it. a desk. Ruined it. The, <laughs> yeah. the magic desk. Yeah. Controversy. <laughs> <laughs> no, I, I think in this case, there's very little of... of things to be sort of critical about even with a modern eye i mean yes as always it's a, an older man discussing specific issues from his own perspective mm-hmm. in, a, in a particular place and time. yeah but it's not mass yeah. it's not massive no, right no. there have been worse that the worse examples of that definitely in recent years he, he's always yeah. been a bit guilty of that though hasn't oh he? yeah it's just yeah. It, cranks it up in some entries yeah. yeah but he doesn't do it too much in here and i think he, he he does a very good job with the sort of the, the moral push and pull of, of this stuff mm. and yeah poignancy i think is a is a very good word and i think you would apply it even if it wasn't one that he'd written and then died you yeah know? absolutely uh, yeah i mean he gets a few little odd funny bits in there like going to a publisher's office so you always know when he's writing about publishers <laughs> and things like that, that he's, he's probably drawing something from real life anyway uh, yeah, I think, I mean, I'm not going to go quite as high as you guys. In fact, I, what I'm going to do is I'm going to invert the figures and go for 78 police shields, but I still think this makes it a very good... Mm. That's um, going to be a pretty solid entry. score. I think that's uh, fair enough. Which yeah. gives it a no rounding required Oof, 83 you. police thank shields. 83? 83, yeah. So good. that's a good way to go out, given that I think Hark was quite a low scorer. <laughs> which was the one before. So I think we uh, Yeah. Yeah, imagine it had ended up with Fruminous Bandersnatch or something. <sighs> yeah, that would have been... Brutal. But who knows? I mean, these we may yet uh, rejig these scores in an official... Um... Well, yes, I, don't, I would um, be very against rejigging of scores, but what I think we could do <laughs> is them go to a... Um, uh, they could be put forward to a, a bit of a knockout, couldn't they? Yeah, where we so. can chat through them and <laughs> maybe have some reflection. Okay, well, before we finish off with Best this and worst, <laughs> yeah, before we finish off with this episode, I will have a look at some contemporary reviews of Fiddlers. Now, obviously, the thing with this coming out after McBain dies is that the contemporary reviews are also kind of obituaries as well. Mm. So I have found Marilyn Stasio's review rather than her obituary, but obituary. Oh, dear me, I can't believe I'm forgetting how to speak on this very last episode. Oh, right, let's see what she has to say. The most endearing quality about McBain's detectives has always been their ability to uncover the ugliness in human nature without turning ugly themselves. Although I think Kling doesn't necessarily (laughs) do that. Yeah, he's had his moments, hasn't he? Here, they consult their partners on domestic matters and argue about issues that matter to them, like Gennaro's insistence on finding out the name of the dog lady's golden retriever (laughs) and counting the animal as a homicide victim. (laughs) Although McBain must have known this would be his last visit to the squad room, he refrains from tidying up the precinct house with neat wrap-ups for the individual detectives who make up his collective hero. When the music stops and the band packs up, everyone is still on the floor, dancing. (laughs) Yep. 
I mean, I don't know whether he would have known it was well, his last one. I was going to say, do you think that's true? Or... Yeah. It seems to have just been had this sort of determination to just plough on with everything as much as possible. So uh, I, it seems to me like he would have just been planning for the next one, whether yeah. it was realistic that he was going to get there or not. Yeah, the last thing he, he, he would do, having heard, you know, heard about him, would be to write one which ended it and him six months later thinking, oh, I'll write another one now. <laughs> you know, and he would have never have put himself in that position, I don't mm. think, would he? I mean, in the Washington Post uh, review of it, which is more like an obituary as well, it does say, McBain had been ill for some time. Probably he knew that Fiddlers would be his last novel and set out to say some goodbyes. Well, that's counter to what we're arguing here, I think. <laughs> Much as the serial killer in the novel is himself dying of cancer and wrapping up loose ends with a 9 millimeter Glock. Yeah, maybe. He, he, you know, obviously his own situation plays into it, but I, I, he's definitely leaving things open so there's room to write more, isn't he? Oh, yeah, I think so. And this review goes on to say... Macho young men strutting their testosterone and the cotton was high. That's a quote from the book. That final tip of the hat to the Gershwin brothers was typical. McBain loved the theatre, we know. (laughs) (laughs) And Isola was the stage where for 50 years he gave us a great American drama. The man who was variously McBain, Hunter and Lombino is gone now, but drop in any used bookstore or library and you'll probably find a dozen or more of his books. Try a few when you're tired of being bored or befuddled by fiction. Some of my favourites are Ice, The Frumious Bandersnatch, you idiot. (laughs) Poison, The Last Dance, and Long Time No See. But you will rarely go wrong if you pick one at random. McBain was a master, and his tales of the city are timeless. And I've got one more. That's from The Times, The Times of London. And it is on my screen in tiny, tiny writing, making me feel very old, because I cannot read it without zooming in loads. (laughs) I will just simply say that it's quite a short review of the book here. In Fiddlers, the victims are an apparently random assortment of over-50s all shot twice in the face, but what else links them? A splendid final fling from one of the true greats. Hang on, I will quote that exactly, that last sentence. Mm. A splendid final fling from one of the true greats. Oh, well well done, The Times. Spelling mistake in The Times. Who would have thought? Good mind to write a strongly worded letter to The Times. (laughs) Write some strongly worded letters (laughs) to The Times and they can choose which ones they want to use. Right, okay. Well, we are going to wrap up that main episode there. Although this is the last episode for the books, we will be back with some summing up stuff and who knows if we'll do some more stuff. We probably will. You just have to see, won't you? Gosh, well, we'll do a bonus episode in a minute and then that'll be it, really, for the main bit of the series. That's it, Will. Oofed. Blimey. So, I think for the last time, I'm going to say goodbye. Steve-O is going to say... I'm going to say goodbye as well. Goodbye. And Morgan is going to say... Fairly well. <laughs> <laughs>